0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. I want to ask a big favor from all of you who haven't already nominated my podcast. The Quill Podcast Awards were just recently launched, and they are listener-nominated awards. I would be so appreciative if people took two to three minutes and nominated this podcast in the society and culture category. There are a variety of entry categories, but you do not have to complete any that you don't want to. The link is in the show notes, and thank you so much in advance. Today, I am interviewing Ayana Thompson about blackface. Ayana is a Regents Professor of English and Director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. She was the 2018-2019 President of the Shakespeare Association of America and served as a member of the Board of Directors for the Association of Marshall Scholars. She was one of Phi Beta Kappa's visiting scholars for 2017-2018. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with her about a topic that is incredibly relevant and timely, so I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: Welcome Ayana. How are you today?
1: I'm fabulous. How are you?
0: I am fabulous also and I'm really looking forward to talking about blackface.
1: Thanks. Not a lot of people are. <laughs> it scares them, you know? Like we're not used to talking about race in this country and then when you try and talk about a history that people want to pretend is in the way back machine, <laughs> it makes it even more daunting.
0: I agree with that. And I do think you touched on this a little bit, but you know, the, the trial obviously is not reflected in your book because it, that just happened. But you talk about George Floyd and how even though we feel like sometimes some of these issues are long in the past, they're clearly not. But I do feel like at least... The Black Lives Matter movement, like I feel like everything is moving along a little better than it has previously. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: I do. I feel like we're in a space where we can make some real structural changes because there are uh, more, I would say, deep and honest conversations, and they seem to be sustained. The only like, fear I have is that we did have this moment in the 1960s. (laughs) Like, we, we did have a very similar moment of reckoning. And then we kind of forgot about it and went back to the same old, same old by the 80s. So I just, I guess I want to keep the pressure on.
0: Kind of that two steps forward, one step back that seemed to happen in a variety of movements. That's right. That's right. So to make sure that we make five steps forward and no steps back.
1: Yeah, that would be the that's the goal. That's the goal.
0: <laughs> well, why don't we start out with you just talking a little bit about Blackface? Like tell me about the book and then tell me how you got started writing it.
1: Yeah, so I am a Shakespeare scholar and I work primarily uh oh no, I work a little bit about the history of racial formation in the Renaissance and then I also work with contemporary theater companies, actors and directors about how they want to stage classical plays like Shakespeare now and going forward. So there's a sort of, I'm always looking backwards and forwards at the same time. And blackface for me, I've been thinking about it, just the history of performing blackness, because that's part of Shakespeare's theater, right? There are a lot of black characters in Renaissance plays, a lot. Like one scholar says that he tabulated somewhere around 70 different characters in plays who would have been performed by white actors in racial prosthetics. And in the on, on Shakespeare's stage, the racial prosthetics ranged from bitumen, which is a kind of oil that you would spread on your face, to visors, which are like a mask, to wigs. Fake noses were employed... Stockings and gloves. So there was various way and costuming, obviously. So there was various ways that blackness was performed on the on the Shakespeare stage, but the constant is that it's always a white male actor performing these black roles. And so the history of performing blackness is a white history, right? It's a history of white people performing blackness. And I was always interested in the way that we don't connect that with blackface minstrelsy, which is a specific performance and genre and mode that was born in the 19th century in the U.S. with white actors putting burnt cork on their face to deride enslaved people or recently freed people. And this is a kind of comic tradition that's all about denigrating blackness and both black men and black women. But I always saw them as being connected, like the long history of performing blackness on Renaissance stages by white men. And then this sudden birth of minstrelsy to me seemed connected. And then I was disturbed by the fact that we were creating these kind of discrete history narratives. Like there's this one moment in the 17th century that has nothing to do with the 19th century that has nothing to do with the 21st century. And for me, I just thought No, that long arc is one long arc. Or as I say, when I talk about George Floyd's murder, like there's a dirty thread that becomes a noose Uh, and that's the connection. And if we don't see that whole arc, we're not able to have real dialogues about how to change this performance tradition going forward.
0: Well, I thought that was very interesting in your book, you know, the focusing initially on the Shakespeare part of it, because I hadn't really thought about that. And I loved the photos that you included, obviously not of Shakespeare's time, but of later on when people are performing Shakespeare and you have, I think, Richard Burton and Anthony Hopkins and some of the things they did. And so it was fascinating to me to read about all of that.
1: Yeah. And I will say that, like, so Laurence Olivier very famously in 1964 in the National Theatre in London, which was then filmed in 1965 and was nominated for a whole host of Academy Awards. Olivier w- took immense pride in talking about how he learned to apply makeup and buff himself with a chiffon cloth, how he followed recent West Indian immigrants around London to learn their walk and hear the timbre of their voices. That he was really like, you know, like leaning into this weird. Imitation performance that was, I think, pretty closely tied to minstrelsy. But he he didn't see that. And and I will say, when I was an early career scholar, and I would be at Shakespeare conferences, and I would use the term blackface to refer to performances in Shakespeare's time and to like Laurence Olivier, I got like yelled at by older white male scholars. Really? Yeah. Like and there was one one instance where um this he since passed away, but an older white British scholar pointed a finger in my face and said, "You, you, how dare you use this inflammatory rhetoric." He goes, "You know you're just trying to Impose something from a later time period onto the innocence of Shakespeare's day, and I was like, oh, "Wait a minute! Wait. Oh, wow, yeah, you're like, okay." I was like, "Yeah, there's a whole lot of emotion in this," and and that's when I was like, "Wait, you you want this to be totally separate?" But they're not. They're absolutely not. And so that's where you know I had to think for many years about you know I guess I would say blackface the book and making was many years in my Brain percolating because I had to know all the history, but also know like why is it our white that white people are so upset by me making this larger historical arc? And there's something about the white innocence um, and the, a kind of belief in white innocence that is at the heart of all blackface performances, whether they were in Shakespeare's day or Governor Ralph Northam, or Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, or, you know, Sarah Silverman, or Jimmy Kimmel, or Jimmy Fallon, or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. The 21st century examples of blackface are stunning.
0: They really are. And I just had not thought about it. I mean, I've seen the times and when people have done it and thought, okay, come on, how stupid are you, you know, and, and gone through that. But I had not seen it accumulated like I do in your book. And it is stunning. You think, how, I mean, I can remember, and I have no idea what year it was, but I know it was in, in pre-2000s when Ted Danson got up with Whoopi Goldberg. Yes, at the
1: famous- um, uh, Was it the Academy Awards? Or... No, it was that, that secret club.
0: Right. And so everybody, you know, made a big stink, rightly so. And I sort of thought, okay, good. You know, you think that people know better. And I mean, I know that was pre-2000s. And you still think we get into this century and people are still doing that and regularly.
1: Yeah. So the Ted Danson, uh, that was at a roast. So That's right. That's right. And and Whoopi was standing at his side. And there was a lot of discourse around that about why it wasn't acceptable, why her complicity was so harmful. But- Right, in the 21st century. And I will say, probably after the election of Barack Obama is when we saw the massive spike. And I think there was a desire among people and comedians to think, right, we've elected our first black president. We are now not only post racial, we are post racist. And so all the things that were taboo for comedians. Suddenly, they felt like they were allowed to do that because clearly racism is over, and so that's when we get this incredible spike of blackface performances on Saturday Night Live, on uh, Jimmy Kimmel, on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show, Sarah Silverman's show, in films. On like there are so many of them, and I, I joke in the book that <laughs> you know in the early twenty first century. You if you were watching late night television, you had a greater chance to see someone in blackface than to see an actual black actor.
0: (laughs) You know, and you did joke about that in your book, and I thought, oh, that is so depressing. And I thought it was interesting because you do think about Obama's election as a turning point. And I mean, obviously we were definitely not post-racist. We saw in the last four years how Obama's election caused this kind of lurch. For some people, to the far right, and and built up these groups that have now you know stormed the Capitol and whatever else. But it's interesting to think that not only did they spawn that, but that they spawned something that like it's okay to use blackface now because we have a black president. That's is kind of mind boggling to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right that they're obviously related. That the and and I will say that and and also of course there were what three or four episodes of Thirty Rock written by Tina Fey who describes herself as being progressive, that her politics are progressive, that her comedy is feminist leaning. But there are at least three or four episodes of 30 Rock that employed blackface as well. And I think there was this belief, this desire that like, if you're progressive and where racism is behind us, that you're allowed to explore the taboo. And then on the conservative side, I think like there's like this well of anxiety and fear about being left behind. Right, right. Right. And so this is like the perfect convergence for the explosion of violence and blackface performances.
0: It's interesting that they definitely are all wound together in this, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. Yeah. Something that we don't like. (laughs) Well, and I do think it's a power issue too. I mean, I think like that man at that conference, it is hidden as something else, but I think people, those people in power are wanting to hold on to their power and anything that threatens that is going to threaten them and provoke a response.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is definitely about power and entitlement. Right. Right. And I think blackface performances, when white people are caught out. And so for example, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, who performed as Michael Jackson in blackface and said that he was like, I loved Michael Jackson. I wanted to celebrate him as an artist. I studied how to do the moonwalk. I perfected the moonwalk. I was in this competition. I won the competition. And so my use of blackface was really about celebrating him. And I had no idea that it, this, this was part of a derogatory history because my heart is pure. And so that, that, that right. reliance on white innocence, what i what I try and express in the book is that there is no equivalent for black and brown people. We don't have... A sense of power or entitlement or a belief in our innocence that we can be like, I love Madonna, and so I'm gonna dress up like her on Halloween in whiteface. Like <laughs> black people don't do that, you know? <laughs> like, and and that's the heart that when once I put that question into the book, I think that helps people understand, like, okay, right, because I believe I'm an innocent person and I don't have hate in my heart. But I don't believe that I'm entitled to put whiteface on my body to celebrate someone else's identity.
0: <laughs> or that you even need to. And I think you talk a little bit about Hamilton yeah. and Lynn Manuel Miranda and his purposely casting non-white people in those roles and that it was very purposeful. But I mean, they're not all up there in whiteface. They're just performing as themselves, even though you know, you know, that person's George Washington, that person's Alexander Hamilton, they were originally white. There's no need to put Quite on them for that to be a thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the funny thing about Hamilton, and everyone always asks me a Hamilton question when I talk about race and performance, because I think many people wrongly assume that Hamilton was cast in a colorblind way, that Lin-Manuel Miranda had written this, you know, kind of rap play, and that he was like, okay, now, It's open. Everyone who wants to uh, audition for this. And then it just happened to be that black and brown people were the best people for the leads. No, (laughs) that's not how it happened. In the script, he writes what races should play the parts. It's incredibly intentional. And as you say, intentional in the way that it does not apply whiteface
0: and that's fascinating to me because my daughter was a huge Hamilton fan from the very beginning so we read a lot about it and she told me all sorts of stuff and i never once thought that it wasn't intentional i mean and when you listen to the music and you you know follow him on any social media you
1: will know it's was very intentional i think it's again the desire the real real desire to for us as a society to be over racism and over discussing race true and so there's this real, I mean, there's this real hunger for it to be in the past and something that is not impacting us now, but that's just not the case. And until we can really delve into all of it, all the long history, all the structural issues, all the ways that these structures create inequalities that are sustaining for generations, until we do that, yeah, we're, it, it's just... <laughs> People are exhausted, but they haven't actually done the hard work yet. (laughs) That's not encouraging.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I know you're right. (laughs) Well, was there anything that surprised you when you were writing Blackface?
1: I will say the 21st century examples surprised me because I'm not a television watcher. And so I was like, oh, I bet there's like one example. And when I came, like, it was just year after year after year of multiple examples And then I also didn't know about all the cartoons. Like, I knew about The Simpsons and that Apu was voiced by Hank Azaria, a white actor. But I didn't know about Family Guy and all the other cartoons that had white actors impersonating Black voices. And so that really, I think, (laughs) shocked me more than anything, like how much it was on every register. So you get like Luann de Lesseps, one of the real housewives of wherever, dressing up in blackface as Diana Ross. But at the same time, you have all these cartoons, all these late night shows. So it's like, it is pervasive in the early 21st century. That really, really surprised me.
0: That surprised me too. And the other thing that surprised me as I was reading was the fashion side of it. Yeah. Gucci had, it was Gucci, right? Yes. Gucci made um, some, I can't even think of what it was right now. The turtle. Turtle. I was like, oh my gosh. And then there was another one too with it on a jacket. And I thought, you know, it was interesting because my first thought as I was reading right there was, why didn't anybody speak up? And so then of course you talk a little bit about that a bit, but then I thought, but even if someone spoke up, I don't know necessarily that people would listen. And then you cover all of that because I do think people say someone should have spoken up. And you think someone probably did speak up in some of these situations and other people just poo-pooed them.
1: Yep. And and that's precisely the the FIT fashion show. So, I mean, I give lots of fashion examples in that last chapter. And then this bit from this Fashion Institute of Technology fashion show where one of the students had included large fake like monkey ears and large fake lips that looked very much like a minstrel face for um, sure on the on the models, and a model said, "No, this is totally wrong, and this is racist and i 'm uncomfortable and The director of the fashion show said there was something wrong with her for objecting, and that she just needed to suck it up. It was only two minutes of her life, so here we actually have someone speaking up, and it 's just brushed aside, and so I do think there for fashion there's this desire to be, it's not unlike the comedians, right? There's a desire to be edgy and that edginess is rewarded. And sometimes working towards taboos is rewarded. But I just want to say to the comedians and to the fashion designers, this is a no-go area. Hello.
0: (laughs) Right. And, you know, you just kind of are thinking, how can this happen? Your book just needs to be provided to everyone in those industries. And then they can say, okay, look, I actually have proof that I cannot do this. I should not say this. It is not okay.
1: And, and that's precisely why I wrote the book. And I start with an anecdote about my, my son, who's who's now 18. Uh, but when he was eight, at his elementary school, they did a year-long research project where they picked a hero and they had to do like a, create a huge poster board with all the facts about their hero, and then they had to dress up of the, as their hero and kind of speak as answer questions as if they're the, that person. So my son was William Shakespeare because, of course, he's in a household <laughs> where we, we talk about Shakespeare a lot all my the son, time. Right, and my son's a little brown child. He never considered putting on white face. That was just not a discussion. But in that in his class, three white children who were whose heroes were Martin Luther King Jr., Serena Williams, and Arthur Ashe, three white children were in full blackface to be their heroes.
0: That was just kind of uh, again crazy to me. I, I don't think I've ever seen that in any one of my kids' things. I hope not. I mean, I will certainly you know pay more attention now, and my kids are older, but. We did the same kind of thing, and I don't remember anybody doing that. But I think it would have stuck out.
1: Yeah, but I have to say, like when I when I raised the issue to the principal, the white principal, he had no idea what I was talking about. And so I feel like, as you said before, like you just want I want now, like if this happens at someone's school, you just hand them this little book. Exactly. it's, It's an easy, fast read. It's accessible. It's not written in jargon. And you say, and this is why it's a problem, and this is why you need to have a conversation with everyone in the school right now.
0: And that is the beauty of your book, because I think you're right. It is, it's very well explained. It shows exactly what the issues are and why, but it's not really long and it's not preachy. And I think you can just hand it over and say, okay, this will explain it all to you. Change your plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> New direction. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is not the right way. Hard right. <laughs> you know, another thing that I have found, and I'm so curious to see if you agree with this, as I have been interviewing authors for the podcast and trying to, you know, represent a wide range of people, I find it really hard to find books by Black authors that aren't either romances or really heavy. And I'm not a really heavy reader, period, regardless of, you know, who's writing it. But it doesn't seem to me there are a lot of just stories about Black families and Black people just being. Do, do you agree with that? Or am I just not looking at the right place?
1: Cindy? you... No, you are tapping into and you are tapping into something that I am quite passionate about. And I'm trying to get some funding agencies to, to help fund a program. But black intellectuals are not trained to be public intellectuals, right? So, like, I was trained to be a super scholar and to talk to other super scholars. I was not trained to write a book that is accessible to the wider world. That is the domain of white expertise. And so we have this, we have a few, like, I think Ibram Kendi has done a great job as stamped. Um, Yes. But like, as you say, they're really few and far between. So we're going to have to now work really hard to train black intellectuals to be public facing intellectuals to write in an accessible manner to tell stories in a way that everyone can understand them but it t- it is a tra- like it's a training it doesn't like you don't just kind of fall into this haphazardly
0: <laughs> right no i agree and i guess the one i could think of that was pretty recent was black buck by mateo ascaraport yes And I do feel like, you know, that is definitely more just kind of a traditional contemporary fiction story. I mean, he touches on, obviously, racism. It's part of the story, but it's also just a story. Mm -hmm. And I just really loved that. I'm not really a huge romance reader. And so, you know, those don't usually appeal to me as much. And so I would just love some stories that were just regular old stories. And, you know, you talk about 12 Years a Slave and how grim it was. And I just think, like, I I can't do that grim. Like, the world is grim enough. I just thought, why are there not just more stories?
1: Yep. Yeah. No, we're not, tra- we are not trained, rewarded. We're not given the keys to that world, right? Like you have to get a literary agent who then is going to shop you. It's like, it. this is the ultimate form of gatekeeping. And so my whole, everything about my career is trying to like give the keys to as many people as possible to open those gates and, or to blow open the gate completely. And so that- <laughs> So that's where I'm. I'm putting a lot of my energies now is trying to get more Black and Brown people to do what, whether it's their artistic work or their scholarly work, to have it face towards the public, instead of just towards the academy.
0: Well, I think that's great because to me, fiction really teaches understanding, empathy, puts you in the shoes of somebody else, and so when you can have a story. Where somebody else is, you know, just living their life, but you're experiencing what they're experiencing. I just think that goes a really long way toward everybody getting along better.
1: Well, of course, and we know that like fiction helps create empathy for people who are not like you, and so we absolutely need a, a wider range of fictional stories, as you said, that represent all facets of black life and they don't all have to fall into the tragic, you know, like. Right. (laughs) Like the
0: world is ending or, you know, somebody was beat for however long, you know, it's just like, oh.
1: I I don't want to hear about anyone's rape or
0: like. Right. (laughs) I agree. Like, I just feel like that is just so unnecessary. I mean, it is necessary actually. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's not necessary. It's just that there's also other stories that are necessary. We
1: need the full rainbow of stories, as opposed exactly. to just one band of the rainbow. I agree. Yeah, and you know, I,
0: I actually specialize in historical fiction, and for me, that has been an issue trying to find historical fiction stories told by non-white authors, generally. Mm-hmm. But it's it's getting better, um, slowly. But there are two coming out this year. One I've already read that's co-written a white author and a black author together about Bella DeCosta Green, who was the oh, personal yeah.
1: librarian. The Morgan,
0: Yes, the Morgan Library. And that book is fabulous. And so that's wonderful. And then Vanessa Riley has a book coming out, and I haven't read it yet, but it comes out in July. And it's about a woman like in Barbados. So I'm very excited. But I hope there'll be more of that too. Because, you know, that again, is a great way to learn about the forgotten women of history, whatever color they are.
1: Yes, yes. Amen.
0: Well that makes me feel better because i thought well maybe i'm just missing something.
1: No I, I and i will say that i i love romance fiction. So so i feel like i've i'm getting plenty but that is such you know it is a very formulaic one band of the rainbow <laughs> type of fiction right.
0: Oh certainly and i mean i'm not against it i think it's great that those stories are coming out and i've interviewed some of those authors and really enjoyed them it, it's just not what i normally gravitate yeah, toward. Yeah yeah. Well, anything else about any of this before we start talking about your book recommendations? Was there something that you want to say that I didn't
1: ask? No, it's just, it's a pleasure to talk to someone who loves books and thinks deeply about what it means to engage with a world through books. So thank you. Of
0: course. Well, then let's talk a little bit about what you've read recently that you really liked.
1: Okay. I am reading. So this is, it's written by a poet, Joshua Bennett but it's a book of i guess i would call it like philosophy and it's called being property once myself blackness and the end of man and each chapter is focused on an animal so there's a, there's a chapter on rats and birds and sharks and there's a couple of other that i'm forgetting and he's really working through like what Black identity is through analysis, deep analysis of of Black authors and the way that these animals are represented and how that can create a kind of larger, expansive notion of identity and the world. And it's beautifully written. So Joshua Bennett's Being Property Once Myself. I'm sure you've already read it, but if you haven't, the short, unbelievably powerful book, um, by Christina Sharp, in the wake on blackness and being. Have you read this, Cindy? I have not. I'm not even sure. I've heard of it. Isn't oh. that terrible? It's a 2016 book. It is mind blowing. Mind okay, blowing. It's great. 130 pages. I thought, oh, I'll read this. You know, like I'm a fast reader. I'll read this. And after it took me two weeks to read it because I was like, it's so mind blowing that I had to go back and reread por- portions and. It's it's gorgeous. So Christina Sharp in the wake. Okay. I will add that to my list then yeah. for sure. And then kind of Contra Sharp, I love the Sharp book, but it's always good to read like a, a different point of view, is Jennifer Nash's Black Feminism Reimagined. And this one's more, I guess this is definitely a book written to the scholarly community about how we imagine how black feminism functions in the, in the Academy. But she's like, so snarky and funny. <laughs> <laughs> those are fun reads when people was, are snarky. Cause I was like, Oh, we're getting the tea here. <laughs> so, yeah, so Jennifer, Jennifer Nash's black feminism. Reimagined. So those are my three books. They're all kind of philosophy heavy, but they're all black authors and amazing.
0: Okay, good. Well, I'm going to have to check them all out. And I'm going to start with the middle one, because that really sounds like it would be fascinating to
1: read. It's so good. It's it's not an easy read, though, emotionally. I'll just tell you that.
0: Well, I figured that might be why you spread it out over <laughs> time, because I do that sometimes when it's like that. I figure, okay, I can just take a little bit at a time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ayana, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This has been such an absolutely fabulous conversation.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. It's great talking to you, and I hope we talk again.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Enter the podcast in the Quill Podcast Awards and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Blackface can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Alison Holland,